Thank you, Jonathan, for the prayer. And thank you for leading the songs that you did. And Paul and Trish for the songs that you shared. I was, I, I'm amazed, I'm often amazed at how well the songs that are selected go along with what God has laid on our hearts to share in the message. And they certainly did this morning. The way of the cross. We're going to end this morning talking about the cross and what the cross does for us in light of morality. And uh, then the other point, especially the last song that Paul and Trish sang, Holy, Holy, Lord God Almighty. And, uh, and, and uh, it just really goes well along with the, the, the last, second to last point that, that I felt God wanted me to talk about this morning, the character of Christ, which is holiness. Well, I welcome you this morning. We're glad that you're here. And uh, we are just uh, grateful for the freedom that we have to worship together. Just uh, so grateful for that. I always uh, look forward to this time uh, in the week when I can share in an intimate way with other believers and uh, rejuvenate and uh, sort of get, get uh, um, yeah, just be edified and encouraged and... Uh, and it gets you what you need for facing the, uh, the rest of the week. So it's always a, a time of inspiration for me. Well, I have entitled the message this morning, Morality or Moral Absolutism Matters. It's uh, given in a statement form. And I have a subtitle there uh, where it says that if you stand, if you stand for nothing, you'll fall for anything. And uh, the text that I would like to look at this morning is a text found in Isaiah chapter 5. Chapter 5 is written allegorically, and uh, it's the, uh, the, the uh, story there is Isaiah states God's lament for his children Judah, and uh, God is, is represented in this chapter as the vine dresser and Judah the vineyard. And so as we think of that uh, allegory, uh, it may make a little bit more sense in what is being stated. So if you have your Bibles, I also do have it on the PowerPoint, but uh, if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to turn to Isaiah chapter 5, and I'd like to read the first four verses, and then we'll be looking at some other verses following that. Starting verse 1, Isaiah 5. Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. Now think of God being the vine dresser and this, uh, this, uh, the, the, the phrase my beloved speaks of an enduring term that he had with Judah. And uh, he's looking over his vineyard. Yesterday I was standing in my office and I looked out and I saw the sprouts of lettuce and radishes coming up in our little vineyard. No, it's not a vineyard. It's a garden. But, uh, you know, there's a sense of enjoyment when you stand and look at what's the seed that is planted. And, and it's sprouting. It's bringing forth life. And uh, there's a, a sense of enjoyment as you, as you do that. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. 
It's planted in a lush area, a place where it's going to grow. It's not on stony ground. It's the prime spot. It's where everybody wants to plant. On a very fruitful hill, he dug it up and cleared it out its, and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in the midst and also made a wine press in it. And why did he make the wine press? Because he was expecting fruit, right? He was expecting fruit. So he built a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. What more could I have, what more could have been done to my vineyard that, uh, that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? That's a legitimate question for a for a vine dresser to ask. One of the laws of the harvest, and I've taught the law of the harvest here already, but one of the laws of the harvest is you, you reap what you sow, right? So if I plant corn, I don't expect beans. You reap what you sow. So if I plant the choicest vines, what can I expect? Choice grapes. So he has a legitimate question when he sees wild grapes coming. And by the way, one, would, uh, one interpretation of wild grapes would give the idea of a, a stinking thing, something that stinks, something that is wild. And uh, why? Why is there wild grapes if I planted the choicest vines? Now, just as good grapes bring forth good fruit, so wild grapes also bears bad fruit. And he gives a list of six things that happens, six types of fruit that come from wild grapes. He lists them in this chapter. And now we're just going to sort of jump. There's more that we could read, but for sake of time, we're just going to pick out Six different things, six types of fruit that come from wild grapes. The first one is found in verse 8. And it is greed. It speaks about greed. And it goes like this. Woe to those who join house to house. They add field to field. There is not place where they may dwell among in the midst of the land. Wild grapes produce greed it's not enough just to have one they need two and they need three and they need four one of the things that we talked about in our class this morning is on stewardship and the responsibility that God has put on us as Christians to be good stewards of the resources that that he gives to us and the tendency is to consume it upon myself that's the tendency of human nature, is to the resources that God gives us is to consume it upon ourselves. 
But God's saying, no, 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 that's not why I gave it to you. It's so, it's so that we can share with others and to give to others. The second fruit that we see that he lists here <laughs> is debauchery. Verse 11 and 12. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may follow intoxicating drink, who continue until night, till wine inflames them, the harp and the string, the tambourine and flute, and wine are in their feasts, but they do not regard the work of the Lord, nor consider the operation of his hand. That's the second thing that wild grapes produce, is debauchery. The third thing that we see is cynical unbelief, and that's found in verse 18 and 19. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of vanity and sin as if with a cart rope that say, let him make speed and hasten his work that we may see it and let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come that we may know it. See what the vine dresser is saying to these, to this fruit that is that is that is coming in, in place of the good fruit that the good grapes that he was expecting woe woe to you the fourth one and take special note of this one is perversion verse 20 woe to those who call evil good <clears throat> and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter Can I identify with what's happening in our society today? Does this verse ring with you? Ring true with you? Those who call evil good and good evil. Those who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Those who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. The fifth thing that we see, that while it grapes is arrogance. Verse 21. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. <clears throat> and this was the kind of fruit that the vine dresser was getting from his vineyard. And the last one that we see is injustice. Verse 22 and 23. Where it says, Woe to men mighty at drinking wine. Woe to men valiant for mixing intoxicating drink who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away justice from the righteous man. Therefore, sorry, that's it. These are the fruit that come from wild grapes. The one that grabs me in particular is the fourth one in verse 20 where it talks about the perversion. And it seems that perversion in our society today demands for more and more freedom to feed the insatiable appetites of, of sinful man. It just seems like we can't get enough. We, we, we reach a point and we think, how much more? And then we, just, then we hear of more. And that's where we find ourselves. We see this level of perversion at every level including the political field in our society, the disintegration of the social and the family structures. We just see it falling and crumbling before us. We see this kind of perversion 
in the collapse of, the, uh, of, of ec economic markets, in the incredible debt load uh, in our consumers in the United States. And we certainly see it in the field of education. <clears throat> the most recent incident that may have caught your attention is the whole issue of general neutral, gender neutral, if I say it correctly, bathroom incident that allows transgender customers to use the facilities of their choice at the Target stores. <coughs> Excuse me. Company officials made this statement, and I quote, And I want you to take note at how carefully it is worded. If you take the statement that they made at face value, we would be okay with it. But we know what's behind it. Listen to the statement. We welcome transgender team members and guests to use the restroom or fitting room facilities that corresponds with their gender identity. Everyone deserves to feel like they belong. Now, I'm okay <laughs> with people using the facilities of their gender identity. But we know there's a whole bigger agenda behind that than the statement that was made. Recently, I was introduced to a video clip that probably made its debut first in Facebook and uh, I am so not a Facebooker. Um, for you people who have asked me to be a friend of yours, I hope you have the character to realize that my friendship goes way beyond whether I accept you as a friend or not on Facebook. I have it because of some work-related things, but uh, I, I'm just not a Facebooker. But anyhow, someone introduced me to a video clip that, uh, that really grabbed me. And... Uh, it is, a, it is an interview that is taking place on the University of Washington. Has anyone seen that clip at all? A couple of you have. Uh, we're going to go ahead and show that. And uh, I want you to really take note of... Uh,
first time that I was introduced to this clip, uh, a variety of emotions sort of surged through me. Uh, it ranged from anger to disgust to disbelief uh, to sadness. And, and then it sort of wrapped up with just a really, really deep concern and hence what, at least in part, inspired this message. How can it be that we live in a culture with a worldview so far to the left that it triggers this kind of a response from our youth when asked these simple questions? These were not abstract questions. And, and like the closing remark in the interview was that if they cannot answer these kinds of questions, what are they going to do with the hard questions? And you know, possibly what is even more concerning, maybe what was driving that concern at the end, is that, uh, do you stop to consider that these are the individuals or their generation is the individuals that will be our, our leaders of this country? Uh, that's very, very concerning. What is the machine that is producing these results and how far is our subculture, when I say our subculture, I'm talking about the Anabaptist slash Mennonite culture, how far are we removed from a similar worldview? Or perhaps a better question might be is, are we influenced by this kind of worldview? And should it matter? And I respond with a resounding, yes, it should matter. Yes, it should matter. It should concern us. And yes, we need to be aware of the power and the magnitude of this kind of influence. We dare not turn a blind eye to it. It may be easy for us to feel significant distance or a disconnect between us and them. When I'm talking them, I'm talking about the mainstream culture or that that philosophy is so far out there that it's not possible that we could ever get there. But scripture, scripture speaks to this kind of attitude in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, where it says, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he falls. And so I would much rather that you are aware that any one of us here this morning could potentially be influenced and that, that the general, uh, the philosophies of mainstream culture could influence our belief system. Or that everyone this morning has a heart that is prone to wonder. I had to think of that song, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it prone to leave the God I love. This allows me to build a defense mechanism. It makes me aware that my heart has the potential to stray from the truth and I need to guard against it so that nothing will sift my heart. And so this morning, I want to especially talk to the younger generation youth and junior youth and the older children here this morning that can understand what I'm sharing. You live in a time. 
You live in a time when more things are at your fingertip than any previous generation on the earth. Your generation travels globally in ways that my parents only dreamt about when they were young, when they were your age. Travel in the last 100 years accelerated substantially from what it was since the beginning of time. The mode of transportation for the norm was the horse, and a horse could travel the speed or distance of between 12 to 40 miles an hour. And that's the way the horse, uh, that's the way the transportation was from way back. And it was only in the last few centuries that other inventions were developed <laughs> that has increased the mode of transportation to a, a, a degree that is almost unfathomable. I just talked to a, a client of mine on Wednesday, this past week, I think it was on Wednesday, and uh, lives in Laporte. And uh, unknowns to me, they had moved to uh, Marco Island in Florida. And I knew from five, six years ago when I worked with him that he was a pilot, had his own plane. So I just inquired about that. And he said, oh, he said, hey, James, got, I got new wings. And I was looking for his wings, but I knew what he meant, uh, the plane. And he said, uh, yeah, he said, he said, I, I, could, I got, and he flipped out his phone. He showed a picture. He says, I can get from Marco Island to, to, uh, to Laporte in, in two and a half hours. Load up my family and get there in two and a half hours. Food and clothing and shelter. In fact, life in general has been handed to you. I'm talking to you younger generation on a silver platter. Now let me just break it down for you a little bit. And, and I'm sort of going a long way around to get to the point that I want to make. So just hang in with me, okay? Economists tell us that there's an estimated $241 trillion worth of goods in the world, in the globe. Now, I didn't get these uh, figures by myself. Uh, it, was, uh, it comes from uh, Gary Miller's book, um, and uh, one that I, that I was introduced to uh, recently. And I found some of these statistics very interesting. $241 trillion. That's a mind-boggling amount of money that no one of us, I don't think, can even wrap or begin to wrap our minds around. We're also told that there's approximately 7 billion people in the world. And that little character on the right there is, uh, represents a person. 7 billion people in the world. <clears throat> Now, imagine if a hundred people, how many people, well, I already said it, uh, if a hundred people would represent 70 million people, okay? So let's think, of, let's think of one person representing 70 million people, seven, 70 times 100 equals what? Seven billion, right? Okay, so we're, we're, we're representing 7 billion people. If we take the, if we take the, the wealth that is in the world, 
it is amazing that 69% of the people in the world control 3% of the wealth. Now think about that. 69% of the people control 3% of the wealth. The other 31 get to take care of $241 trillion. Or another way of saying that is that $7 trillion goes to, to, to 69% of the people and the remaining 240 or the remaining 234 trillion goes to the other 31% of the people in the world. Now, I don't know if you have, we tend to compare ourselves by our surroundings, correct? And I don't know where you think you fit in this picture here, but you probably think that you're in the 69% of uh, every time I reach in my wallet, that's how it feels, right? I'm in the 69% of the 3% that is of wealth that's available to us. But if you, if the total of your, the value of your assets, whether it's your home, whether it's your vehicle, your furniture, the cash in your bank, or any other asset exceeds how much do you think? It's more than that. If it exceeds $10,000, you are on the wealthy side of the global wall. Now, I hope this gives you a, a perspective of where you live and what has been given to you. Now, I want to break it down another way. Let me talk about it from the degree of the great American dream. We hear that phrase, the great American dream. And I want to speak directly to that great American lifestyle and talk about what's or where some of this $234 trillion is spent. It is said that $60 billion is spent on pets every year. A $65 billion is spent on soft drinks every year. Another $11 billion is spent on bottled water each year. $40 billion is uh, spent on grooming our lawns every year. Uh, a $5.8 billion is spent in keeping our clean. $10 billion is spent on romance novels each year. $65 billion is spent on recreational hunting and fishing each year. And our lifestyle becomes a heavier and a heavier and a heavier burden to us as we accumulate, as we accumulate, and as we accumulate. <laughs> A very simple lesson that I remember our children's uh, favorite stories on Odyssey. One of the lessons that I remember very clearly and spending hours driving and listening to these stories hour upon hour is that the more assets that you have, the more you own, the more it will own you. 
Now, you truly live in an unprecedented era of history. Never in the history of man has so many opportunities been poured into so few people. And the question I think we need to ask, the question you need to ask yourself, is has this contributed to the general spiritual health and vitality of our youth and children? Another significant difference in your generation from previous generations is the increase of knowledge. Today, the apex of knowledge is only a few keystrokes away. I can just tell the difference between my generation and my children's generation. You know, if I've got a question, I go to the source of trying to find someone who knows. But if my children have a question, they go to the internet to answer that question. I, it doesn't even occur to me. It's starting to. It's starting to penetrate my foggy brain, but... Uh, The world of technology has opened the, the, an, an opportunity of wonder, amazement, and certainly help that we could never have imagined even 30 years ago. But walking simultaneously on parallel tracks, it also opened up a world of danger that is equally staggering. My heart bleeds to think of the many youth that will not or do not have the character to say no. No to the world of entertainment. No to the world of movies. No to the world of pornography. No to the, to the instant messages or anything else that will cause you to self-destruct. More than ever, we need young men and young women. And, and can I also add moms and dads? who are committed to build on the character of Christ and keep a kingdom focus in our hearts. A George Barna survey recently stated that less than a fourth, less than one-fourth of those who are born again agree that there is such a thing as absolute truth. I guess the other 75 are unclear on issues of absolutism. Is there any wonder that many in our university students have no moral compass? I want to, in the remainder of our time, talk just a little bit about moral absolutism. And this gets maybe a little philosophical, but I think I want to address it from that point of view. There's three things that I think about when I think about moral absolutism. The first one is that <clears throat> moral absolutism is the philosophy that mankind is subject to absolute standards of conduct that do not change with circumstances. It's a standard that is set and circumstances do not change that standard. Secondly, moral absolutism, the, in, in, in this is the, the, these standards are universal to all humanity despite culture or era. So that means from the beginning of time till now, and it transcends all cultures. It's global. 
And thirdly, they maintain their relative, uh, their relevance, whether or not an individual or culture values them. Doesn't matter what you think. The standard stands. It never, it is, and, and, and I would just add to this that it is never appropriate to break a law that is based on any one of these absolutes. We live in a generation that is rife with con- contradictions in its understanding of moral values. One, on, on the one hand, <laughs> we, have, uh, we are witnessing the confusing bo- uh, blurred lines between good and evil and the desecrating of boundaries that were intended to keep us from harm. I want to break this apart a little bit. And I want to use a traffic signal in comparison to a moral law or a moral value. A traffic signal has become a universal standard that crosses culture, humanity, and time. Last summer, as you recall, we went to Thailand about this time, a little bit later. Uh, And uh, in this country, that is on the other side of the globe and about 11 time zones away from us. In an entirely different culture, in a different setting that certainly has a, a, a place that has various and, and sundry modes of, of transportation that is different from the U.S., But regardless of all the differences between that culture and that country and the United States and the culture that I grew up in, there was one universal standard that caused all cars to stop at an intersection. And what is it? What? The red light. The red light. light. And what was the signal that allowed the traffic to drive through an intersection? The green light. Red and green is a universal standard that helps alleviate accidents and navigate traffic through intersections. And and it goes all across the globe. Now, certainly, I'm sure that there's some places and some cultures and countries that pay more attention to this than others. But red and green is there for our safety. It's there for our guidance. It's there to help us, inter- or help us navigate these intersections that has the potential to destroy us. But is red and green the only way to alleviate accidents at an intersection? What are some other ways? Roundabouts. Yes. And there are varied and sundried opinions of roundabouts as well. But it is another way to navigate an intersection. What else? Stop signs. Yields. And if you go out to Kansas, uh, you just look. Exactly what, uh, what Samuel said. There are no stop signs or yield signs. You look both ways. So there are different ways. However, 
Every culture understands the importance of creating a way to navigate intersections to protect each other from harm's way. The same is true of humanity. Man is dependent upon a moral framework to navigate the intersections of life. When, when a road is straight and all the traffic is going the same direction, it takes far less energy to keep our little buggy on the road, on the straight and narrow. But when we come to an intersection, when it takes us to a place where two vehicles come from opposite directions, that is when we need a guiding principle to help us navigate through those dangerous areas of life. Friends, youth, you have to ground yourself in truth. You must ground yourself in truth or you will self-destruct. In conclusion, I want to change the title of the message from a statement and ask the question, why? Why moral, moral absolutism matters? Why does it matter? And I'd like to give you three reasons why. The first one is simply that morality is the, 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 the waypoint that holds a society together. Morality is the waypoint that holds a society together. And when I talk about society, I'm not talking just mainstream culture or U.S. culture. I'm talking about any society in the world. I'm talking about the society that we find ourselves right here in this auditorium, a family, or whatever structure it is. It's the waypoint, it's the glue, it's the adhesion that holds us together. An absolute moral frame, uh, framework contends that right and wrong does not simply depend on an individual's relative belief or their own opinion of right and wrong. There must be a consensus of right and wrong for a society to function well. Let me help you think through that process. If it is true, if it is true that right and wrong stands regardless of context, then must we not also agree that evil acts should be called upon or called into judgment? Think about that. If we say that there is something like right and wrong, then must we not also agree that evil must be called into judgment? When a society disregards moral values as good being bad and bad being good, then we no longer have a basis for or a standard of judgment. Think about it. That is why God puts civil government in place. According to Romans chapter 13, verse 4, he says, He put him in place to execute wrath upon him who practices evil. If we were to take good or evil away, there would be no basis for a civil government to impend any kind of judgment on the person who does wrong. This is possible when evil is weighed against the standard of truth. Judgment is. Judgment is possible when evil is weighed against the standard of truth. I was asked to share at Bethel several weeks ago on a Sunday evening 
and the topic that was appointed to me was on child training. And one of the key elements that I shared with them, uh, and, and I may have taught it here at some point or another, I'm not sure, but one of the key elements was a nugget of truth that a, a older father shared with me when I was a young dad. And one of the things that he said is, he says, James, I deal more adamantly with a child of mine who lies than with any other sin. Because he said, if your child learns how to lie, you have no basis to deal with anything else in his life. Everything else revolves around truth. When you have no truth, you have no basis to deal with any other problem. You can blindfold me. You can turn off the lights. You can blindfold me. You can make so that I cannot see one thing. But if you use this as the standard, this pulpit, this pulpit, this podium here, if you use this as the standard and you start me from this point of, 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 uh, of uh, the waypoint, if this becomes my waypoint, my standard, and I start from here, I'm blindfolded, it's dark in the auditorium, and you tell me to take 10 steps forward and then turn right and go five steps to the right and then turn left and go seven steps left. I can do that. And I can, I can come back to the standard in the dark, blindfolded, if I reverse the pattern, if I have a place to start. But if you put me in the middle of the room and you blindfold me and you turn off the lights and you say somewhere in this room is a standard, find your way to it. You have no place to go. You don't know what, it could be anywhere. And so then we have to create our own way. And that's what's happening today with many in our culture. They have taken away the standard. They have no bearing anymore. There's no waypoint. There's no place for them to come back to and say, look, why do I believe what I believe? If that's what you believe, so be it. Good for you. That's the response. And it's, it's really, it's, it's serious. No, there are some things in life that are right and wrong. And you have to commit yourself to it. If you want to get anywhere, and if you want to arrive home safely, you have to be convinced in your heart and in your mind that there are some things that I will not get involved in because the Spirit tells me not to. A comment that Glad made after she watched the video clip is the utter ridiculousness of even going to school if they truly believe what they just said. Why accumulate knowledge if everything is relative? The second point, second reason that moral absolutism matters 
is that morality is not grounded in the commandments of God, but rather in the character of God. Now you say, James, so now wait a minute. How can you separate the commands of God from his character? Well, if good is defined simply by whatever God commands, the morality is arbitrary, meaning that God could command us to kill everyone who disagrees with us, and we would have to consider that, by definition, to be good. I know that gets a little philosophical, but think it through. I want you to help think through this process. If we push back and we say, well, God can only command things that are good because he is good, then that also, there also must be some objective standard outside of God by which he measures good and evil. And if that's the case, then we really don't need God because we could just go directly to the standard by which he chooses or gets his, uh, gets his uh, where he gets his standard from. But Christian reality is pro. God himself is the plumb line. God himself is the plumb line. The Bible presents us to a God who is, who is light and in him is no darkness at all. His character is light. There is no darkness at all. In his character, he does not change. That's what scripture says about him. The scriptures say that he keeps his promises. The Bible says that he is faithful. He does not lie, the scriptures say. In John chapter 8, he says that he is the truth. In scripture, it says that God hates injustice. It also says that he judges justly. The Bible says that he is righteous. Scriptures say that he cares for the weak, the destitute, the widow, and the fatherless. The Bible says that he is kind, that he is gentle. And it certainly says that he is love. That is why the command of God in Scripture is not simply to be holy as I have commanded you to be holy. It says, it's way more profound than that. He says, be ye holy for what? I am holy. That's where it comes back to the song that you sang, Paul and Trish. Be holy because I am holy. His character is holy. His character is, is the standard. It is, he is the standard. He is the plumb line. It's not just what he commands. He commands his commands. We follow his commands because it is rooted in his character. Morality is grounded in the character of God. Lastly, the reason why it's, it matters is that morality gives us a compelling reason to believe in God. Immanuel Kant famously wrote in one of his writings, Critique of Practical Reasons, he said two things fill the mind with ever-increasing wonder and awe. One, the starry heavens above me, and two, the moral law within me. And he was right to be awed by it. 
there is a there is a persistence there is the persistence of a plumb line a standard that is independent of us that simply will not go 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 away and 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 we all know when we have transgressed it the existence of objective moral values not only gives us a compelling reason to believe in god but it points us to some of our most profound needs and it draws us close to God. And he deals with our guilt and he offers us forgiveness and he ensures justice. Several years ago, a survey was taken at the university, at a university in in the UK And very few who took the survey were professing Christians. In fact, there were very few professing Christians on campus. And it is said that the vast majority of students filling out the survey said that they struggle with guilt. Now think about that. If these individuals are not born again, or connected to a Judeo-Christian worldview, where then does this guilt derive? The truth is that we can talk about about moral values in, in, in abstract concepts for hours on end, and it does not impact us, but it only takes one second of bad choices, a bad decision to make a life time of regret. We have gotten so good, I think, at convincing ourselves that we are relatively good that we seldom seldom stop to think about the bad parts within us. In closing, I just want to say that uh, G.K. Chesterton is a famous writer in the past, probably not as well known as some of his students. In fact, I believe it was Oswald Chambers who read Chesterton's writings and became, Oswald Chambers was an atheist and uh, he came to know the Lord through Chesterton's writings. And uh, one of the most famous letters written to an editorial was by G.K. Chesterton and uh, he wrote it to the New York Times. The New York Times had written an article that was entitled, What's Wrong in the World? And Chesterton replied to the editorial. And he said it this way, Dear Sir, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. Now this is not a glib re- reply. In two words, Chesterton points us to the profound reality that we are, each and every one of us, broken and in desperate need of forgiveness. We all stand on the same ground before the cross. The way of the cross leads me home. We all stand at a common level at the foot of the cross. We all carry guilt. We are all in need of forgiveness. God's moral framework looms before us as a standard of holiness that exposes our sin and our selfishness 
and our guilt before him. And that is why we need him. That is why we need him. The cross is not for the guiltless. Rather, God's moral law exposes our desperate need for him. God's moral law points us to the cross. It renders us guilty before him. And we find peace and forgiveness in the blood of Christ at the foot of the cross. That is why moral absolutism matters. Let's pray.